My own, my own. There we go. Amen. All right, open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 6. It's kind of weird not to have the projector up here, but I'll try to keep your 12-minute attention span, as what the scientists say, engaged without a picture. All you've got is this, so glory, right? Um, but Exodus chapter 6, we're going to go right into it, uh, beginning in verse 10, and then we're going to go all the way through 7. Um, 7-7, seven, seven, actually, I believe, and talk about what we're all here for, I hope, or what um, the leadership started this whole thing uh, for. Exodus chapter 6, verse 10, just going to read a couple, it says this, uh, we're right at the end where God uh, previously went through all his I wills. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I'm going to do all of this. You are going to do squat you are going to sit back and watch as I save you. And he continues to tell Moses this and tells Moses to go to Egypt after the Pharaoh has already rejected what he said. In verse 10 it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, colon, meaning here is the charge, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Two years ago today, two years ago, probably November 7th, I don't know exactly what day it was, but two years ago today, on this Sunday, we launched... Damascus Road Church, publicly, if you will. Actually, we were over there. I saw pictures of it. It looks really weird. There was probably a good 35 people here, and it was uh, amazing. It was fun. It was exciting. And two years prior, I should say about six months prior to that event, God showed up in my life and said, go plant a church. And in the midst of that, I went, you've got to be friggin' nuts. That's exactly what I told God. And I prayed and I prayed and said, I do not want to do this. Sounds kind of fun, but look, I've got a lot of responsibilities. First of all, I'm going to tell you what I'm not, God. I am not a seminarian. In other words, I don't have some wonderful seminary degree. I like to talk about my Bible degree, but it's really nothing to cry at home about. It's, it's, it's meaningless. I've never been a pastor, Lord. You know that. I'm a sneaking English teacher, God. Are you aware of this? I teach kids about literature, about climaxes and stories and things like that. I, I correct kids' grammar. Okay, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. I'm a dad. Still learning how to be a dad. I've got three little kids. At the time, I had two. One was on the way. My wife was pregnant. Are you kidding me? Pastors are poor, right? I've got bills, okay? I, I can't do this. This is nuts. I'm still trying to figure out how to be a good husband, a good dad, and now you want me to go lead other people. That's crazy. Let me tell you what I can do. Let me tell you, as just as Moses said to God, who I am. As if God didn't know. And God graciously was patient with me. And I argued with him. And I lost. And I argued. And I lost. I said, fine, I'll go plant a church. But anywhere but Marysville. I'm not planting in Marysville. Lost that argument too. Okay? And so we came and I said, I can't do this. Send someone else. 
He says, no, but I'll, I'll give you someone. I'll give you an Aaron. Literally, gave me an Aaron. Aaron Mortiz. Okay? Then he says, I'll give you a Mark. Then I'll give you a Brad. And I'll give you all these other people. You're not alone. Go do this. And we all sat with them, with Mark and with Aaron and with Brad and Matt and all these guys. And I said, okay, guys, what do you think? And to the guy, they all were like, this is crazy. And I think we all felt, as maybe Moses did here, where he says, I am uncircumcised of lips. I am sinful. I am broken. I am incompetent. Who am I to stand in front of people? Who am I to pastor people? And we all sat and stare at each other and go, man, I know how jacked up your life. You know, and we knew. And let me give you the big secret. The big secret is 1 Timothy 1.15 that Paul says, Paul, the great apostle, the great writer of most of the New Testament, the great evangelist, the great church planner says, I know this, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the greatest. Let me give you the secret. I am one heck of a sinner. And so is Mark, and so is Aaron. All of us are. We're a bunch of broken men holding as tight as we can onto the cross, following Him wherever He leads us. Now, the thing about God, as we would argue with Him and tell Him who we were, is that He never disagreed with us. You notice He never disagrees with Moses? We tell you, I'm, I'm sinful, I'm incompetent. No, Moses, you are so amazing. You, you didn't do that. You notice any time Moses makes an excuse about who he is or what he can't do or can do, he didn't say, Moses, let me tell you about your resume. I remember sitting before the church planners, Kalen remembers this, and I, they had my resume, they had all these testings, and I was trying to tell them why I shouldn't plant a church as they're trying to approve me or disapprove me. And I said, oh, look at my resume, guys. This is this, this, this. And, you know, they didn't say, no, you're great. They said, yeah, yeah, we see all that stuff. But we hear your heart. We hear an experience. We hear a guy who, honestly, is probably pretty stupid for you to do this. I mean, you got kids. You're a teacher. Never been, yeah, that's pretty crazy. It must be of God. It must be of God. And the beauty of a church plant is that in the beginning, all things are exciting. I mean, if you guys, if, if for a lot of you, or some of you at least, you've been here, um, you know, we had 13 people to begin with. We had 13 people. I remember the first Sunday we had at my house, we had 17 people. I just found a journal entry. I was like, oh my gosh, we had 17 people. It's amazing. Okay? 17 people. Now, that's like, Mark's family's like six of them. Right? <laughs> so you can figure out how many. And Aaron's like another five, so it's like... Us, that's it. Oh, glory, look at they brought their kids. Count them, you know. And we would count people. We counted dogs and cats, anything we could find. We could, oh, we got 20 people now. This is awesome. And we moved into school. It was like everything was exciting. We got a projector. Wow, you know. We got lights. This is amazing. And then some new guy would come and like, who's that? I don't know, but I don't know, they found out about us. And it was just exciting. There was an energy. And we are like, hey, we need people to set up chairs. Okay, and you got like all these people set up chairs, and they set up in like five minutes, and like now what? I don't know. We'll just talk about God now, and it was it was exciting, and it was amazing, and then slowly things grew, and they have grown. We're we're at least fourteen people now, right? It, and things are growing, and 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 we got way too many kids. God praise. That's I mean, a large part. That's why we went to two services. We had so many kids. Everyone shows up. I was like four kids. You know, that's wonderful. But it's like 
dude, slow down. So then I preached on <laughs> my sermon series on sex really worked. So, but it was exciting, and then you become a church. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I'm going to use it in a bad way. You become a church. And suddenly things are like, okay, now we, we go to church. That's what we do. And we set up church, and we tear down church, and then we go to our jobs. Okay, we got church now. And that excitement slowly dies down. And at the core of that excitement dying down, I think, is the fact that we forget that we are here to do something. Like Moses and Aaron, we have been given a charge to do something. And it's exciting, and it's risky, and it's crazy. But the moment you begin to be a church, and all you care about is this, which is important. We want to care. The the elders are so concerned about the people that God has given us. But what about the people God hasn't? We live in in this community of 30,000 people next door to the biggest city in Snohomish County, 100,000 people. The two largest places of population you know, centric places in the county. And you could fill all these churches up, our church included, multiple services, and there would still be thousands of people who still need to hear the gospel. We get our comfy, well, they're not really comfy chairs. We get our comfy chairs, our our church, and we start worrying about ourselves and feeling good about ourselves and forget all the lost people out there. And so my hope is that as we start talking about being here for two years, being charged that we don't go, okay, we made it. We're not even close. This is just a portion of the church God has given us. The rest of it's out there somewhere. And we're to declare the gospel and find them and see them come and then see them go back out. Coming here is just like, it's like training. Okay? Cheer up, now go. Just like in many ways, Moses and Aaron. Now, I will say this as we get into the, I'm going to make this all exciting through a genealogy. How is he going to do it? I don't know. It should be great. But the fact is, the same charge that Moses and Aaron have been given is the exact same one we have been. And that is to go and tell the world my name. Go declare my name. First in your family, then in your community, and then outside of that. And so my hope, my prayer, my cry is that we revisit, refresh that excitement to say that we are about something much larger than just building a fun little community bomb shelter we can all hide out and away from the world. That's not what it's about. And we'll do that by reading a genealogy. Amazing. Let's get into it. So we get the charge to go, and then... Out of the, in the weirdest spot, this genealogy plops down here. And this is the reason why people don't read the Bible, okay? Like, okay, I'll try reading the Bible. And they open up and they get some long genealogy that goes over three pages. And like, yeah, that's exactly why I don't read the Bible, okay? Genealogy. John begat, ham begat, ham begat, ham begat. You know, it's like it goes on and on. But it's important. And so we believe if Scripture tells us that all Scriptures God breathed, every word of it, then the genealogy is important, so we'll read straight through it. And if I don't, Say the names exactly, you won't know, but what I'll do is just read them really fast. Okay, to tell kids that. When you don't know a word, just read it really fast. They'll think that you know exactly what it is. So, if I read it fast, you'll know I don't know how to say the name. Alright, verse 14 says this. Just bring, the charge is to bring the people 
of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And then it says, these are the heads of the father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, being Jacob. Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. There's no light here. And Carmi, these are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. And if you're pregnant, these are some great names that you can identify now, you know. Don't go with the Johns or Bobs. Nothing wrong with that, but, you know, naming your kid like Ohad, that is awesome. So where do you get that? Exodus chapter 6. And you'll sound all spiritual, okay? These are the, set, uh, <laughs> these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to the generations. Gershon and Kohath and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimei, by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mahali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took his wife, Jehovah, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel. Is he really going to read it all? Heck yes. Mishael, Elizabeth, and Sithri. Aaron took his wife, Elisheba, the daughter of Ammon. Ammon, I should be able to say that one because it's like all consonants. But Ammonab, Ammonab, yeah, whatever. Okay, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, and Ebihu, and Elizar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asar, and Elkanah, and Abisaph. Yeah, and these are the clans of the Korites. Elazar, Aaron's son, took his wife, one of the daughters of Puchel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads. Phineas, that's an easy one. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, in case you're wondering, colon, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. In particular, because there are many other people named Aaron and Moses, very common names. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am uncircumcised of lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? You see why they might have done this, because this is written a lot of time removed from when it actually happens. Moses is writing Exodus after the events of Exodus. So he's looking back, and if you read, as you go into uh, Deuteronomy and Numbers, you'll see that there's some questions about leadership. There's some conflicts of leadership, and much of this is to, be, to answer uh, those particular questions or conflicts. But the genealogy is important. Uh, people in ancient uh, Middle East and even today place a tremendous amount of importance on genealogies. And the Bible has all kinds of genealogies in it. You can go through, you see there's two genealogies for Jesus, one in Matthew, one in Luke. And genealogies are usually quite selective. In other words, it's never a perfect family tree. I created a beautiful graphic that you're not going to see today because the demon possessed our projector today. But what you would see is a breakdown of the family tree, and I'll kind of break it down for you in a second. But it's not, there's holes in it. And they aren't holes by accident. They're holes on purpose. If you look at Jesus' genealogies, both of those have a different purpose. The one in Matthew traces back to a different name or person than one um, in Luke. One, I believe, traces back straight back to Adam, and one traces back to David, because Matthew was intended to project or proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, and 
Luke is trying to convince his, of his humanity. So each one has a different perspective, and so they provide genealogies with kind of different selections of people, so to speak, or different angles. But they're the exact same genealogy. It's like, you know, only picking the good guys in your family tree to talk about how you're a good guy or talking about the bad guys to proclaim someone's a bad guy. So I don't know if you've ever looked at your family tree. Maybe you should. You might have some interesting things in there. I don't know mine. My dad's adopted, so who knows where I'm from. But all genealogies have a specific purpose, and they're all selective. And this particular genealogy looks both backwards and forward from Moses. Most family trees, when we created it back in, like, elementary school, we would say, okay, I want to know who my dad was and then my grandfather, and we go backwards from us. But this one goes backward, and then it goes all the way forward from him as well. Backward, it goes all the way back to, basically, the son of Abraham. God has declared through Exodus, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. We know Abraham was the guy who received a call from Moses to say, I'm going to covenant with you. Okay, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And then he says, what are you going to do? I'm going to give you a son. Are you kidding? My wife's super old. I'm going to give you a son. You're going to, it's going to bless the world. That son is Isaac. He's the son of faith. Then Isaac later has a son named, well, he has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob becomes the, the son by basically deception in many ways, but by God's will, who the line of Israel begins to go through. Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. Jacob has 12 sons from two wives. Okay? He marries Leah by accident or by deception of his uncle. He doesn't love Leah. He works for 14 years, seven for one and seven for the other, so that he can marry both these women. He wanted to marry Rachel, so he worked for seven years, did a little bait and switch on him. Leah, oh my gosh, I'm married to you now, I'll work another seven, now I'll marry Rachel, the woman I really love. He never loved Leah, but she is the one, because he did not love her, God blessed and made fruitful. And so she gave birth to sons. Particularly the first son, which is listed in genealogy, is Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Okay? First son, Rachel's still upset that she doesn't have a kid. Second son comes, is named Simeon. They list that name as the second son from Leah again. The third son that comes, listed in the genealogy, is Levi. And Levi was the third son that she named Levi and has a, the meaning of attached to it because she was hoping that now she'd given her husband three sons, she would be he would be attached to her, and he really still wasn't. So after Levi then, because Moses' parents were both Levites, you see the genealogy goes from kind of these three brothers, the first three sons of Jacob, down just to Levi. And then it starts to trace the line of Levi. And it goes down and lists the brothers and whatnot until eventually you get to Aaron and Moses. And Aaron and Moses, because they both had Levi parents, what you see in this genealogy is this story of faithfulness kind of weaving through, and there's brothers and different people that are not included in that. doesn't mean they weren't faithful or part of that, but God in particular chose certain men and a certain line of people to redeem the world through and to bring his kind of plan of redemption to fruition. And so eventually you get to Moses and Aaron, and it goes past Moses and Aaron. It really just focuses on Aaron. We know Moses has a couple sons, but he married a woman that certainly wasn't within the tribes of Israel. She was a Midianite. And he had several sons with her. But as you see, Moses is this prophet. And Aaron kind of eventually assumes the leadership for Israel as he becomes the high priest. 
and eventually all the spiritual leadership and really the head, so to speak, of Israel as it develops is centered on the temple, and the temple is run or led by the high priest. And so Aaron is this high priest, and so you have the, his family line that continues on, which eventually ends in Phineas. And so they have this complete genealogy that lists out the beginnings from Levi, who was the original third son of Jacob, all the way down to Phineas, who is, as you follow Phineas' line, eventually becomes a priest in line with his father. And I think the last time you hear about him is in, like, Judges. So you hear him way past uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, past Joshua, into Judges. And you have this line that's consistently going through, and Phineas then is the grandson of Aaron. And that's how you end it with. Now, so what? So we got this wonderful line. Now, I will say this. Without question, God has declared himself the I am, Yahweh. And Yahweh, the name of Yahweh is I am self-sufficient. I am independent. I depend on no one for my existence and no one to complete my plans. And that's the heart of that name. And so he has already declared and revealed himself as independent, but he also, through this genealogy, proves that he has chosen to work through men, people, not just men, but people, to bring his plan of redemption. In other words, there's a role to play for people. And he has chosen to use people to bring that plan together. And if you think about your own life, our own life, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm just weird, I guess, but you as an individual, your faith or lack thereof, the decisions you make, even outside of faith, but really anything that's um, outside of faith is simple, but that's another verse, but the idea of any decision you make influences people over 200 years of time. Because you're going to influence and be influenced by your parents, your grandparents, grandparents, parents, you, your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. That's how much influence your faith or faithlessness has on people. That's very burdensome in some ways, or sobering to hear about how much influence you can have on your grandchildren, how much influence you can have on your parents or your grandparents. We always think of, I know I do, sometimes, okay, i got to train my children, train my children. Do I ever think about their children? Do I ever think about my parents? Well, I learned something from them, and I don't have nothing to teach them now. Wrong. That's why young people, I think, are so important. But there are people that are older than me that I can both learn from and teach at the same time. But we have this tremendous amount of influence, and what you see in this genealogy is Moses talking about what you do is going to affect backwards and forwards everyone around you. And God is going to use those faithful people to bring about his plan and redeeming this world. Now, think about us as dads and moms and single people and employees and grandpas and grandmas and great-grandmas. And great, is that you've got to ask yourself, when push comes to shove, what do they see? What does the world feel about what you value and what you honor in your life? 
Because whatever you value and whatever you honor, yes, without question, it's going to impress upon your children. But as you extend that out, it's going to impress upon many more people than that. And with, when we just stop and think about someone walking into your home, someone putting cameras everywhere, which is weird, I know, but watching you go about your daily life and sipping back after 40 years of time, what do you value most above all else? What will they say? What do you want your children to say that you valued most above all things? Just because I chose to, to be a pastor chose, because I agreed, <laughs> agreed, because I was forcefully made to be a pastor in a church, doesn't mean somehow my kids are going to be like, oh my gosh, daddy loves Jesus more than anybody else in anything. There's a very real possibility that the very opposite could happen. Well, they could say, oh my gosh, dad sacrificed the family for this church. I'll tell you, that won't happen come up one day and say, I quit. It's been fun. But without question, they're going to see something about what I value. And my question for you is, from your parents, your neighbors, your family, your kids, your grandkids, what are they going to say about you? Are they going to say, man, my grandpa was a really nice guy. My grandpa gave me everything I wanted. My grandma loved me. Or are they going to talk about how much you loved Jesus? Are they going to see what you truly believed by what you sacrificed for? That's the question. And I hope that my kids see certain things, but I fear that in my own depravity, they won't. They won't. But we have to ask about that. We get so much in just like the next generation. Let's talk about a generation of influence. God uses people without question. And then God sends us on mission. See, we planned this church. Um, we came in. This is why when I say this, we say he sends us on mission is that your children need to know that. Is that the mission hasn't changed ever since Genesis chapter 3. It's still the same for us. It was the same for Moses, it was the same for Aaron, and we could create a genealogy of people, maybe faithful or not, in your life that have proven that. And maybe you're the person in that genealogy that for the first time is suddenly going to show faith. Maybe there's no place of faithfulness in your family history, in your family tree. And you are starting it now and setting the table for the future. Or maybe the table has been set for you. Maybe there's been a model that's set for you of pure faithfulness. And you are supposed to be living that out. I don't know. But the, question, the point is the mission has never changed. We planned this church. We came in and we were supposed to be doing the exact same things as the church was doing back in the, old New, in the New Testament church. And that is this. Some churches get this so messed up. They come in and we had a new and fresh thing, but it's really just a new and fresh expression of something that's very old and very ancient, and that's the gospel. The mission that we have is no different than it used to be, and it's no different two years in than it should be at one year, but what happens a lot of these new churches, and you can read books on it, and blogs on it, and videos on it, some of the new emerging type of authors have written books called Reinventing the Church. I'll tell you right now, the church doesn't need to be reinvented. 
I think of reinventing the body of Christ like, like doing some kind of nip and tuck on it. The body of Christ doesn't need any kind of modifications. And the moment you start cutting off parts and injecting stuff in places that's not supposed to be there and making things bigger and smaller or whatever, with the body of Christ, you've lost. You've lost. You've just changed the mission that is not changeable. Men's hearts change. God does not. God is still on a plan of redemption. God still uses men to fill or fulfill that plan of redemption. And we kind of go, oh, we're going to do a new thing. Let's change it all, which means basically let's throw out the Bible and make everyone happy. But we didn't do that. And we choose not to do that. I do think that the church could use maybe some new clothes and new hairstyles every now and then. Because we don't need to be doing church like we did back in 1962. But to start modifying and cutting things off and changing things, no. No. The world is not saved through big programs, through clever advertisements, through all kinds of creative things we can do. It's saved by a boldness to declare the love of God through the death of Christ in our place for our sins. That's the same mission that Aaron and Moses were preaching. God's salvation. And it's the same message that you're supposed to be preaching to your children, to your parents, to your grandchildren. Do they know that message? If you ask them who Jesus is, do they, can they tell you? Do you ever talk about Jesus? That's the question when I was doing a Reforming Marriage conference, or it's conference, Bible study with, with guys. One of the first questions I asked was, hey, last two weeks, how many times did you mention Jesus in your house? And it wasn't like, well, I mentioned 26 times. Ha, 28! It wasn't like that. It was like, I don't know if I ever talked about Jesus in the last two weeks. What do you value? What do you value? Last week we spoke about God's promise to deliver His people from their burdens, from slavery, from under the oppressor, that they might worship Him. And for those who have chosen by God's grace to believe, those who have been chosen by God so that you would choose Him, We are not freed so we can just not work anymore. We are freed to work for God in a whole new way. In a whole new way. I think it would be amazing if we could look at life unlike the Israelites. What I mean is that before you have Jesus, life is just like slavery. Where you're going through life like the Israelites were, with no hope, tirelessly working for no purpose whatsoever. But when suddenly God opens your eyes, we learn that we don't just work for ourselves anymore in our own comforts, but we see that everything we do, everything we have, every relationship we encounter is employed for the purposes of declaring the greatness of of God in this world. And like a genealogy, we're all just another chapter in a much larger story. And a much larger story. Think about this for a moment. This is kind of my prayer. And it's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for my children. That if for a moment, and longer than that, but just for a second, if you could view your life as an important chapter in that larger story, as more meaningful than 
than not. If you could see with all clarity that the giftings God has given you, the experiences that you've had, the interests that you share are not an accident, but they're intentionally given as a means for God's plan in this place, in this time. What that tells me is that you and I are important, that we have a purpose, that you have a charge to follow, much like Aaron and Moses, that everything that makes you who you are, where you are, when you are, is intended by God so that you can be the missionary and the ambassador just as Moses and Aaron were in this time to this generation. We don't think like that. I don't think we think like that. I didn't start thinking like that until two and a half years ago when I suddenly started to see that this world was much larger than just my little world and the need was great. But the question is, I think for all of us, is like, okay, I'm supposed to be on mission. What am I supposed to do? What's that look like? Enter Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. On mission as they go. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, though I multiply many signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people of children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great Acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. And they did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old and 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Then Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. You shall say to Aaron, Take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, then it may become a serpent. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And the Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and also did the same by their secret arts, for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff, and still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. See, we all share the responsibility as missionaries of God to go into the world and declare God's name. To declare God's truth. It's exactly what Aaron does. Aaron and Moses. We go reflecting the little bit of the image of God that we have in us. And we speak of God's truth. We declare God's love. And we call men to repent from their wickedness and to be saved in Jesus, unapologetically. And first, though, it's interesting to know that if you look back when Aaron first shows up with Moses and God first provides Aaron, he says, look, you're going to be like God to Aaron. First, you're going to be like God to Aaron. And our mission as individuals, as men, as women, our mission first and foremost is to our first church, which is your family. That's your first church. 
First, Moses is this mouthpiece to Aaron, and he teaches all that God commands Aaron, and Aaron's going to go out and teach others. But first, he starts with his brother. Now, granted, he's doing that because he's somewhat unwilling, but the fact remains he does it to those who are nearest to him. Our first church is where it starts. You're called as a mom and a dad, a husband, a wife, a single person to reflect the image of God to the people that are closest to you now. You're on mission now. Way before you go out into the world and plant churches or tell people about Jesus, you need to start by telling people about Jesus in your own house. First. That's your first church. If you are a bride, you reflect the image of God and declare God to your husband. If you are a husband, declare God to your bride. You declare God to your parents. You declare God to your grandparents. You declare God to your children and to your grandparent, to your grandchildren. You are turning their eyes towards God and His plan for redemption. That is what is first and foremost most important. Then, when that happens, then we go out into the world. First you proclaim God as an individual, then you declare God as a family, and then we come together, a family of families, on mission together for the rest of the world. That is our purpose here. And it's exciting, and there's risk involved if you so choose to follow God's charge. It is. It is this experience for Planet Church has been the most exciting, horrible, terrible, wonderful thing I've ever experienced. And I would have it no other way. I don't know what the future holds, but I know the direction that my family is going to walk together. But what does it mean to go, okay, fine, I will declare, I will be like God to my family. I will not be God. I will be like God. I will reflect the image of God. And I will be like God to the world. What does that look like? Well, you just look at Exodus. First and foremost, God reveals himself as a God who is an initiator. He doesn't wait for men to come. He goes. God is a missionary by nature. And husbands and wives sit in their marriages waiting for the other one to do something. I'm waiting for him to spiritually lead. I'm waiting for her to respect me. God is an initiator. He moves before we deserve to be moved toward. He moves. He goes. We are to declare and be sent. He's always ascending God. He comes to Moses. He sends Jesus. And he's rejected both times. But he continues to pursue. Like Jesus... We are sent into the world. He says in John 17, I'm sending as I was sent. We are to go in to the world and dwell with the people who most need to be dwelled with. Rather than, which is my greatest fear for our church and any churches, rather than, as I said, hiding out in our Christian bomb shelter, scared of the world. We're going to gather together sing our songs, insulate ourselves from all of culture, and then go out and do the same in our homes until we come back together and we can talk about Jesus again. God's an initiator. 
And he doesn't initiate with people who know him. He goes to the most idolatrous, powerful guy in the world and says, this is God. This is who I am. Believe or die. Now we say it with much more gentleness. But at the core of it, if you look at the book of Acts, I was doing this last night. Acts 1 through 7. You see what Peter said? Okay, these are people that just killed Jesus. Are Basically, they're hiding out in the very beginning of Acts in a house, scared to death. The Holy Spirit comes there empowered. And he doesn't go out and build like, you know, inflatables for the kids and call people into programs and, you know, and start declaring really nice watered-down gospel. He comes out and he says, you killed Jesus, you are wicked, repent and believe and God will save you and forgive your sins. He says it over and over and over again. He comes before the council, they're like, stop preaching. I'm sorry, you killed Jesus, repent or die. That's what he says. It's not even really that loving. He's like, repent from your wickedness, repent. You guys killed Jesus, repent, repent, repent. The message is very simple. It can be said in loving ways, but Peter doesn't do that in Acts. But he goes to the people. He's an initiator. Sometimes, though, when we're reflecting God's image, we reflect the God who speaks. In other words, we speak the truth. God speaks regardless, unfortunately, with what the reaction is. We don't stand on the strength of our opinions or boast about our ability to persuade. In this church and in my home, I preach a very simple gospel. I pray every single night with my children. Every single night. I pray that they will believe that Jesus died for their sins. That they will believe that he rose from the dead, that they might be saved. I talk about it a lot. So when you ask my kids, who's Jesus? I found out yesterday. Ken was telling me this. Fisher came home. I might have been yesterday, but I found out yesterday. Fisher came home one day from school and said, uh, yeah, he had a class picture, I think. He's like, yep, that person loves Jesus, that person loves Jesus, that person loves Jesus. So I was like, okay. So Caitlin said, how do you know that they love Jesus? He's like, well, I asked him. He's like, what do you mean you asked him? He's like, well, I sat down at lunch and said, all right, how many of you love Jesus? I'm asking him into your heart. He's like, dang. <laughs> but that says nothing about necessarily like, you know, he's some little, like, Pope in the making or something. It's not like that. It's the idea that we talk about Jesus a lot. We speak about Jesus. But let me just ask you, all the people you interact with, that generation that you're called to influence, how many times do you speak the truth? I mean, we're so nice and caring to people, so much so that we're silent. When the greatest thing they need is to hear Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Turn from your sins. Repent. Believe. That simple. We speak the truth. We speak the truth. Last couple things. Not only does God initiate and reveal Himself to initiate, we initiate. Not only we speak the truth, but we love. It's easy to talk about love, but you can't love people unless you're actually next to them. But the most loving thing you can do, you've got to be careful. The guy that is poor and homeless, the guy that needs food in his stomach and shoes on his feet, okay, give him shoes and give him food. But if you never give him the most loving thing, which is the most loving thing in the world to do, is to tell him that Jesus died for his sins, 
that God wants to be with him, then you're going to give him a nice, you know, comfort cruise, basically, straight to hell. That's all they're going to get. You can give as many people stuff as you want to feel good about yourself or to make them feel comfortable if you don't give them what they most desperately need, which is salvation. You may as well give them nothing. So we believe the most loving thing you can give someone is yes, you meet their physical needs, but you have to meet their spiritual needs. And we believe in a God who judges. We speak about with gentleness. We speak near to people in love, but we speak and we do not insulate them from the hard truths that we have a God who judges. And that's where it gets difficult. And if you're speaking about your own opinions, if you're speaking about what you think is bad or good, yeah, that would be scared to speak about it. But when you stand before people and you say, look, this is what God says to your family first and then to the world. You say, we have a God who judges. We have a God who demands worship and says that all these other idols out here that you're worshiping are false. And for those who deny him, for those who repress the word of God, they know to be true. You live under the wrath of a God whose eyes are blazing red. That's the truth. And if we don't tell that, then you drop half the gospel out. He's a patient God, but he's a just one. And he sent his son to die so that you don't have to face that wrath. But for those people who deny that wrath, I'm sorry, deny that sacrifice, you're still under the wrath. You're still under the creator of the universe who demands justice for your sin. But we have a God, finally, who saves. We don't speak about our ability to appease God or to do more, to make God love us. We speak about what God has done to save us. We speak about what God has done. That's why he's so much about I will. From Exodus 3 to Exodus 7, he says I will or my like 30 times. He's all about what he's doing. We worship a God who pursues us as we run straight into the darkness. He pursues us. We worship a God who breaks through all the resistance we put up. We worship a God who loves us when we're not lovable. Who dies for us before we're clean. Who lives now to give us purpose and hope and joy. And he saves us from that which we cannot save ourselves from. That's the God that we take and declare as we go out before our families first and before the world. And anyone we interact with, everyone we interact with. All of us are supposed to be ambassadors as Moses and Aaron are. And you have to consider what the call that God has given us as men and women, as fathers, as mothers, as grandparents. Moses and Aaron are 80 and 83. Today that would be like 50. And Moses and Aaron live for 40 more years each. They die at 120 and 123. Average age today is about 73. Women live a little bit longer. About 79. Well, you're young or old. Because in that genealogy, we've got Phineas, who is probably a toddler at the time Moses writes. 
and you've got the grandparents and the past ancestors. If you've been given 25 to 40 years in your life, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? As you stand before God and he says, look, I gave you 25 years. I gave you 40 years. I gave you 10 years. What did you do with it? Did you declare my name? And it doesn't matter for our church if it is two years old or 50 years old. It's the same mission always and forever. And it's proclaim the name of God. And it doesn't matter what we build or how much we grow or how much God decides to shrink us. How much we're loved, how much we're hated, how hip we are or how out of touch we are. Because at some point we'll be out of touch. We may already be. I don't know. But it doesn't matter any of those things but this. Whatever we do, sing, or say, we do so in an effort to proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ. Period. It's that simple. We proclaim and call men to repent from their sin and believe they are forgiven in Jesus alone. It's the same mission. And like Egypt, we have a community where more people, God even promises, more people reject that than believe it. More people reject that and believe it, but we are not discouraged. We don't lose heart, and we go out with boldness, and we risk. We take, I mean, honestly, this is a risk. Starting this church, a risk. Crazy risk. We go into the darkest, not the clean parts, the darkest parts of the community before the oppressors of the world, and we throw down our staff. We say, ha You go, what staff? Oh, I got a staff. It's a big old piece of lumber shaped like a cross. And I carry that sucker out, and I go, poof, and I lay it down. And until that piece of lumber shaped like a cross covered in the blood of my king, until the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the most important truth in your life. Until that event is the most important event in history in your life, you'll never be on mission beyond what you can make in your own little world for your own comfort and yourself. If that is number one, the most important thing, you will give it to everybody. I sat in bed last night convicted as I, my wife Kaylin was about to go to sleep and I said, you know what? If we really love Jesus, and I wasn't like preaching to her, I was just like thinking this as I read the Bible. Sounds like I read the Bible all the time, like I'm super spiritual. No. But I was reading it. If we really believed the cross of Jesus Christ was the most important thing for us, we would tell everybody. We, we wouldn't be able to not tell everybody. It would be just pouring out of us all the time, overflowing. We'd be like, Jesus, Jesus, man, I love you. You need Jesus. Mom, you, you, why are you doing this? You need Jesus. Turn from your sin. We would be talking about it nonstop. But we approach it in the same way we approach prayer because we don't believe prayer really works. Otherwise, we'd pray all the time. That's the core of what we're supposed to be. And we need, even if half
half the church leaves tomorrow, if half the church stays and they're committed to saying this is the most important thing that everyone out there needs to know, okay, let's go. Let's charge a stinking hill. Here's a sword. Throw it in your hand. Let's go. Because that is the most important thing. This, all of this is a speed bump to eternity. We get so focused on just this. This is nothing. But being in the presence of God is everything. Now, if it's not the most important thing to you, here's the fear. You'll live a really comfortable, safe life. Where your faith is little more than a backpack you put on every now and then to go on some adventure versus being the adventure itself. And you will raise children who will have children who will have children who are more impressed with all the sticks and snakes that the magicians and sorcerers are throwing down and not even noticing the big old snake that's swallowing them all, which is the cross. If you are a believer today, just say, if you're not a believer, I implore you in the same way that Moses and Aaron and Peter, James and John and Paul and Billy Graham and Martin Luther and anyone else in this genealogy of faith that we've seen, I implore you to today repent. Confess your sins. Believe that Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And if you're a believer, before you take communion today, you let the Lord search your heart and ask yourself, what is most important in your life? What is most important in your life? Your mission or God's? Your mission or God's? Let's pray. Father God, I give you praise and glory for the plan of redemption that you began in Genesis, Lord, in the Garden of Eden. With our first parents, you had a plan to save us. Lord, I pray that the cross of Jesus Christ will be the core of everything that we are. Lord, that our grandparents and our parents and our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will see in our hearts a love for you. And that as they see that, Lord, as they see our own personal faith, it will bleed out into a family of faith, and we will gather together, Lord, as families on mission together to redeem the world. Father, help us to see the world with your eyes and to believe that the gospel, the cross of Jesus, is at the cornerstone of everything we are, hope for, and want to be. In his blood we pray. Amen.